0: This is Mark Sandy. Welcome to Inside Economics. Uh, Thank you for joining us uh, today. I'm uh, also joined by uh, a few of my colleagues, uh, of course, uh, Ryan Sweet, Director of Real-Time Economics, and Chris DiRidi, Deputy Chief Economist. And we have uh, another one of our colleagues who's going to participate in the conversation, Bernard uh, Yaros. Uh, Bernard, say hello.
1: Hi, guys. Hi, Mark. Hi, Chris and Ryan. Happy to be here.
0: So, so Bernard, how long have you been at... uh, uh, at Moody's analytics how long have you been working with us
1: about six and a half years closing in on seven wow I didn't realize yeah. it was that long
0: you know yeah. I bet you guys don't know about Bernard Bernard is <laughs> a well he, he's one of these guys who knows everything pretty much everything I think he knows like 10 languages am I wrong Bernard how many languages uh, do you know
1: about I, I'm I'd say I'm fluent in three but I I'm I can hold my own in about a couple others
0: and one of them i think is arabic
1: right yeah arabic yeah oh
0: wow which is (laughs) pretty tough language to know yeah and you spent some time kind of just wandering the (laughs) middle east or something
1: yeah I, i lived yeah after college i lived a year in yemen so i got to experience you know the arab spring back then you know that was occurring at the time and then i worked for a year or so as a journalist in Tunisia. Um, which was actually the birthplace of all the, you know, the Arab Spring revolutions at the time, um, and yeah. then, you know, I, I went back, you know, to grad school, did economics, and then joined right away at uh, at Moody's.
0: Where in Yemen were you? Were you in, were you in Sanaa? In, were you in yeah, the in the capital. Yeah, in the capital. Oh. So, so this must be very disturbing to see what's happened there in, since you left. Yeah,
1: it's it's very it's it's very sad what's happened. Um, I I left really before the conflict got out of out of control, but it was already, you know you could already see, you know, the, the writing on the wall, you know, there was basically civil strife. It wasn't until a couple of years later that really the Saudis intervened. Um, and, and that's really when the, you know, the human toll really, you know, took a turn for the worse.
0: Yeah. You know, your internet just cut out a little bit, just so the listener knows that there was just a gap there. Uh, mm-hmm. you, were, you were talking about the meaning of life and you were going to tell us what the meaning was and you just <laughs> cut out at the last minute, but, uh, yeah. but just so, so the listener knows also you, you're like a, um, a squash prodigy or something, like I remember this because I used to play a fair amount of squash, and you were legendary in the squash courts of Philadelphia, as I recall. Is that right? Yeah, you still I, play I, squash?: I, I
1: you still don't. Uh, I, I tore my Achilles uh, uh, when I started at Moody's actually, and I, I was in a cast for several oh, months. Uh, so after that, I never you know I, I, yeah after that, I've never played so.
0: Yeah. Hey, you know, uh, did you know this uh, Bernard about Chris? He's, he's, he was about ready to turn pro in bocce ball. Did you know that?
2: I, I heard play? the last heard? episode. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> like, I, I mean, I don't, Chris, why didn't you turn professional? I, I can't, I, 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 I
2: missed out on the scholarship, right? That oh, was, uh, that
0: was it, the scholarship. <laughs> Damn. Uh, so you would have been like, uh, how, I mean, if you go pro in, in bocce ball, is that like a big deal And you can make a lot of money doing that? Oh,
2: certain circles.
0: Yes. So that means if, if you had gotten that scholarship, you would not have been an economist. You would have ended
2: up being- I would have never had to uh, pay for a coffee again.
0: Right? <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, we've got a very talented group. And oh, I should, should say, yeah, Bernard is with us because Bernard is uh, critical to our analysis of federal uh, fiscal policy. So every time uh, a new proposal is put out there. You know everything from the CARES Act a year ago to the uh, 900 billion dollar COVID package at the end of last year, the American Rescue Plan, the Bi- Biden Build Back a Better agenda. Uh, uh, Bernard goes into into uh, hyperdrive and uh, uh, helps uh, us uh, evaluate what the macroeconomic consequences of those uh, policies are. So we're going to talk about fiscal policy, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But as you know, because you are uh, regular listeners to this podcast. It has three parts. Uh, part one, we go over the key statistics of the week. Uh, you know, We're here talking to you Friday afternoon, so we've got a whole week worth of uh, data. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, and, I, and I'm I just going to add a little twist here. I'm going to ask everyone to identify one or two statistics that uh, they think listeners should be following uh, regularly to gauge something important about the economy and we'll come back to that. And uh, part two is uh, the big topic, and this because Bernard's with us, it's gonna be about federal fiscal policy. So there's a lot to talk about there, uh, and uh, we'll dive into that. And then finally, part three, I'll pull it all together for everyone and uh, give you a sense of, based on the conversation, uh, where, where we landed. So that's the, uh, the script uh, moving forward. So uh, the data. Um, I usually start with Ryan, but let's mix it up a little bit. It, oh, and I should ask Bernard, do you want in on this com- part of the conversation too, or do you want to wait till the fiscal I, I, I've, has I've to got be. my,
3: I've got my, you got system. one. Yeah.
0: Oh, it, you got one. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, baby. All right. Don't so we're coming back to you, but I'm just, you know, because you know, these other guys have been doing it for a while. They're going to show you how it's done, you know? So, all right. All right. All right. Uh, Chris, uh, what's your statistic of, of the week?
2: All right. 1,453.
0: Dollars. Dollars. $1,453. $1,453. You guys know what that is, uh, Bernard? I'm, th- I'm Ryan? thinking. No. Um, that's a tough well, one. Can you give us a hint, uh, Chris? Uh, or are you going to give it away if you give us a hint? That's
2: housing
3: related. Yeah.
2: 1400 goes to that well. I
0: yep. know. He's a housing <laughs> guy. Housing. Market. I knew it was housing related, but uh, I, I don't know, Chris. What is oh, that?
2: Oh, uh, no. Uh, Ryan's got it. He, he no, always comes no. in comes through come on i
3: don't know this one but
0: we got existing home sales we got uh housing starts mm-hmm. but none of those i can't think of anything in those reports this week that go to 1400 is it can I, oh can i can i say is it the uh average or median monthly mortgage payment
2: oh that's a nice guess but it's not no right. be-
0: <laughs> Oh really? <laughs> I, I, it could be right. It could be it right because be you right. don't know it's right or wrong. But damn, it's got to be pretty close to one thousand. I'm going to look it up. I'll there look 100. it up. The average mortgage payment. I, I defy you, someone out there, <laughs> Bernard. While you're waiting, look it up because Bernard gets to the statistic very. Look up the. Just Google. Say I think it's more like the average as opposed to the median. But uh, you know, average or median? Okay. So what is it, Chris? It
2: is the um, the price per thousand. Board feet of lumber. Oh, so it's I, sh- I should have known that one. Yeah. And uh, that is down fifteen percent from the peak, which was just two weeks ago. Really, peak was 16, 17. Yeah, so lumber prices have been coming down, but they've been vol- very volatile, right? So there's have. still very lots of volatility. But do you uh, think
0: they, they have peaked though, or are they? Are we on the other side of this uh, surge in lumber prices, or is this just data? Yeah, just the volatility in the data.
2: I think. Uh, I think we're going to. We might have peaked, but I think we're going to remain at this elevated level for a while. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably bounce around for a while. Mm-hmm. But I, I think a key point is that we that uh, commodity prices certainly can and do adjust very rapidly. Right, this is 15% down in two weeks. There's been a lot of inflation talk, uh, certainly, and I think that's valid. But commodities have a way of uh, adjusting very, very rapidly. So mm-hmm. if it's not the peak, I, I do foresee that uh, we will see some correction later on this summer, uh, certainly as things continue to, uh, to settle down.
0: Yeah, and we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, maybe several weeks ago, and we, there's a bunch of things going on here. But uh, as I recall, the key thing is a lot of sawmills shut down during the pandemic, and it's just taking a bit of time to get those sawmills back up and running. Is that, do I have that right?
2: Well, no? what I've heard is that the sawmills are running at capacity. But there's very little uh, desire to expand capacity at this point, right? Because if the sawmill owner thinks that this is a relatively short-lived phenomenon, demand is really strong now, but it could taper off later this year. Then they're not going to make a big investment. They're just they're happy to collect the dollars that they can now and and wait, right? So I think we have a little bit of a cat and mouse game, right? Uh, Got it. They need a clearer signal that this is here to stay, or that you know these prices are going to remain elevated. It isn't just speculation that's going on as well. So,
0: But presumably they could still make a boatload of money, even if the price of lumber was cut by a significant amount, they could still make a lot of money here. Yeah,
2: They could, they could, but it's not, you know, putting on another sawmill takes some time. It's not a costless endeavor, right? So.
0: Yeah. L- l- while we're on housing, uh, housing statistics did come out, the housing starts numbers, and that was a bit on the soft side for single family uh, uh, housing starts. And, Home sales also, existing home sales, they're strong, don't get me wrong, but they're down. You know, They were 5.85 million, I believe, which is That's well right. below where they've been in the last six, nine, 12 months. They were well over 6 million uh, units per annum. Do you think uh, we're seeing now uh, a, a, a more of a, a moderation in housing activity? Is this, again, just data, statistical noise, or do you think we're starting to see some coming back to earth of the of the single family housing market uh, based on this data
2: I think we are uh, starting to push up against the limits, and lumber plays into this as well, so some of the uh, decline in lumber prices might be builders responding as well that well, they're they're just not going to build or they're not going to uh, accept that price right so I, th- I think we will see some moderation, but I, I do expect the rest of the summer uh, for demand to remain quite quite high so I don't think this is going away or that we'll see a sudden correction, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're at the top here. We might just bounce around at this level and then uh, gradually
3: come back into equilibrium later this year.
2: And I so l- Lumber
3: is definitely impacting the new housing market. Mm-hmm. The, the existing side, it's lean inventories. So in April, homes were on the market 17 days, which is ridiculously low. This time last year, it was 27 days. So their housing turnover is just extremely, extremely low. And I think existing home sales are going to go go a little bit further lower before we bottom out. So Chris, you got to look at your existing home sales forecast. It looks a little uh, optimistic. Oh, it does it? For the end of the year. So in our our baseline, we have 6.2 million annualized housing, uh, existing home sales. I think it's going to come in closer to five and a half.
0: So we're saying that the, the kind of uh, moderation in construction and sales is more a function of supply constraints, inventory constraints, than it is any weakening and kind of underlying demand for housing.
3: And some payback that, was, was due. I mean, existing home sales went parabolic in the second half of last year. So, you know, yeah. we're still, like you said, we're, we're still running at a very strong clip of existing home sales. It's just, you know, we're coming off that, off the boil.
0: Yep. Got it. Uh, and we by I should this is an advertisement say next week our podcast is going to be on housing and housing finance, and we're going to get uh, 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 Jim Parrott uh, t- uh, to come in and, and speak. Jim is a good friend and uh, uh, you know, I've written a lot of papers with him on uh, most recently on the housing supply shortage, but of course, we've been the last decade writing a lot of papers on housing finance, GSE reform, that kind of thing, and it'll be really good to have him. I hear he's pretty funny, so that you know that'll liven things up. Uh. Okay, Bernard. I'm gonna before I go to Ryan because Ryan is the pro at this data. Uh, but uh, I'm gonna turn to you. So, what's your uh, what's your statistic?
1: So, my number of the week is two is two thousand eight hundred.
3: Oh, we just lost him. Can you believe that? That internet connection in Boston. Yeah, damn Boston. Fifty six dollars. Yeah. Are right, you? You gotta repeat it, Bernard. You froze again.
1: You froze okay. again. Bernard. Uh, so uh, my number, yeah. So my number is two thousand eight hundred and fifty-six dollars. I got that one. Two
0: thousand eight hundred f- oh, you do okay. Go ahead, Ryan. What is it? Tax
3: refunds, average tax refund. Uh
0: yep. You're reading because that's you read everything Bernard writes for the Economic <laughs> new website. There.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's a timely statistic because obviously this past Monday was the extended deadline. Right.
0: So our well, we'll come back to refunds when we get to the big topic, you know, the fiscal situation. But just uh, to give some context, is that a is that a large uh, refund, or is that typical, or you know, how how would you think about that?
1: It's it's about three to five percent higher than in past years uh, compared to you know the average refund at at comparable points of uh, past years, and it it just shows that in general this tax season has been shaping up to be quite good for the taxpayer in the aggregate, at least.
0: Okay. And the number of people getting refunds, is that up as well?
1: So the aggregate number of refunds, if you look year to date, that's also tracking up slightly above, not much above, but slightly above uh, past, you know, the past pace and prior years. Okay. And obviously it's going to get even better. And we can talk about this more because of the American rescue plan. Um, you know, starting in mid, in mid summer, you're going to start having these child tax, these monthly child payments that are also going to come in the form of uh of refunds. And that's, you know, that's going to hit as soon as July and going all the way through the end of the, the year. And that's, you know, we're, we're talking about another 50 billion in refunds that are going to be in advance on what would normally occur.
0: Is that, you said 50 billion, is that 50 billion over what period of time?
1: 50 billion between July and the end and
3: December.
0: Got it. Right. Good. Okay. We'll we'll come back to that. Um, okay. Ryan, uh, what's your uh, statistic of the week?
3: 76.8. It's a diffusion index.
0: A diffusion index. 76.8. You guys have 70 cents of that one? 76.8. Um, I don't know. What is that? 76.8.
3: It's uh, in the it's Philly out of Fed. Philly Fed survey, the price is paid index.
0: Oh, you are really going down into the bowels of this oh, wow. report. Wow. Like if you told me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the top line Philly Fed Index was like 31.5. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And now you're telling me I got to now. You got to know- get.
3: You got to dig deep. I mean, this is. I mean, the big topic is you know the hot topic over the last several weeks has been inflation, and this the prices paid index is at its highest since uh, the early 1980s, and it's it's not a leading indicator for inflation. It's more coincident. It tracks you know commodity prices very very closely. But when you look at the gap between prices paid and uh, prices received, that gap's getting really wide. So one thing I was gonna, you know, bounce off you and Chris and uh, Bernard is, I wonder if businesses pricing power, you know, is not as strong as, you know, people are are anticipating, therefore we're not gonna get as much inflation, uh, consumer inflation over the next, you know, six, nine months as as people are worried about.
0: Right, well, we know that businesses don't pass through a lot of their higher commodity input costs right so they eat a lot of it Uh, right or they they work really hard to navigate around it by substituting out one input for another input that kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh and if they think it's temporary you know if they think it's a couple three months that more likely they'll probably eat it i mean if i think if they thought this is going to go on for a year or two then they probably have no choice but to pass more of it along
3: yeah, that was my hunch because if you look at the gap, again, between prices paid and prices received, it gets this wide when you get oil price spikes. And mm-hmm. usually that's transitory and they look through it. So uh, yeah, I mean, you got you to dig deep. You can't just look at the headline yeah, I, number. I, There's a lot of important I, I, information.
0: I, I hear you. I hear you. I, I think the other thing you do is you kind of put these dif- different diffusion indices we get from different uh, Federal Reserve districts from across the country onto a Kind of an I so-called ISM basis, so you can compare apples to apples. ISM is Correct. the industri- yeah, and on an ISM basis, what was the Philly Fed? Was it uh,
3: sixty-four it did uh, not in the come prior down. month? No, exactly. Yeah. So that there was a big drop in, in the headline business conditions index. Right. That's its own separate question. That more often reflects business confidence, and also the way they ask the question is uh, you know, how are business conditions relative to the prior month? And, I mean, things were you know booming in the prior month. So it's not surprising that, you know, the headline index came down, but on an ISM composite basis, it was still very, very elevated. Similar with the the Empire State Survey.
0: Got it. Got it. So what's kind of the broader message here? I guess from the, it's that we've we've still had these supply issues and it is uh, because of the improvement in strong and the continued strong demand, we are getting continued price spikes and and it's uh, uh, about as, the spikes are about as large as they've been since, well, the last time inflation was really, really high back in, in the uh, early 80s. That's, that's kind of- Correct.
3: But we're not going back to 1980s style inflation for the US, for consumer no. prices. So I th- I still think the inflationists are s- still crying wolf. Like it's not, you know, we're not uh, going to embark on, you know, double digit inflation in the US.
0: All right. Hey, I got, you want to hear my statistic? Yeah. You ready? What do you got? 89.9%. 89.9%. Any, any ideas? I'm not digging that deep either. I mean, it's pretty much in your face, kind of a statistic, especially you, Ryan. Yeah.
3: 89.9%. Give us a clue. (sighs)
0: Okay. Okay. well, if I if I give you this fluke flu, uh, clue, you'll know. But it's okay, because I'm, I'm going to put you out of your misery. Uh, uh, ninety nine point eight percent is the state of Florida. The state of Florida is at ninety nine point eight percent.
3: Oh, you're still not going to get it. I'm surprised. Vaccin- I that- it's not vaccinations. No, no, no. It's not. We're never going to hear that.
0: Oh, I, that's I'm surprised. Like I guy I stumped you. Yeah. Hey, it's the back to normal index. Oh, yeah. Uh, <sighs> the,
3: your go to. Oh wow.
0: Yeah, my go to, <laughs> because it's moving up very quickly. I mean, I think when we started these podcasts a couple of months ago, it was it was a little above eighty percent. Oh, I should say to the to the listener, we construct this so called back to normal index, which looks at a raft of different uh, statistics. Uh, government statistics, third-party statistics, to gauge where the economy is compared to its pre-pandemic level. So, you know, when I said 89.9%, it means that um, that the economy uh, uh, by this measure is uh, 89.9% back to normal. Still got about 10% more to go to get back to pre-pandemic levels. And that that's it's rising now very, very rapidly opening up the Florida is, there's no state that is completely back to normal, but Florida is on the cusp, as I said, you know, very, very close. Uh, and do you know the state that is at the bottom of the list? Big state that is at the bottom of the list. You probably know this, right?
2: New York, New York.
0: Yeah. New York. Yeah. New York. It's, it's uh, just below 80%. So, but it's, I, I suspect now that New York is opening reopening uh, officially, uh, that'll start rising very rapidly. So, I, so uh to me that this index has done a very good job of kind of uh capturing all of the economic data and kind of putting it into one statistic that you can get your mind around and it's saying yeah we're coming back oh, but by the way the the bottom the nader <clears throat> back uh a year ago in the teeth of the shutdowns was sixty percent so the economy was sixty percent of its pre pandemic close so we've gone from 60% back up to almost 90%. So we've made a lot of progress here and we're getting back really uh, very, very quickly, uh, back back to normal. Um, I did want to ask you what, I think I, I mentioned this, um, uh, is there a statistic or two that you think the listeners should be watching on a regular basis? And we'll come back to, if not every week, you know, every couple, three weeks to uh, get uh, uh, just remind people of the statistic and what it's saying that people should be looking at. And here, I'll give you an example uh, just to give you uh, a sense of what I mean. So, uh, you know, of course, inflation is top of mind. Everyone's nervous that this this, uh, accelerate, this uh, spiking in commodity industrial prices is going to result in broad-based persistent inflation that's uncomfortably high. And one uh, statistic that I think uh, would be useful to look like, kind of like a poster child for all of this, is copper prices. I think I mentioned this in one of the other podcasts, but copper prices, the uh, we, economists call it uh, copper, Dr. Copper, because it's a you know, very sensitive uh, price. Uh, it gives you, uh, it's global, gives you a really good sense of, uh, you know, what's going on globally uh, on a real-time basis. And right now, I look today, it's at $4.50. That's that's indicative of, uh, you know, a lot of inflationary pressures. Anything over $4 is, uh, uh, is uh, you, you know uh, inflation. Uh, so if it comes back below four, that, that means we're kind of moving in the right direction. Three dollars per pound that would be kind of typical. That's uh, what you'd see on average uh, through the business cycle. Uh, and uh, closer to two, which is where we were a year ago in the pand- middle of the pandemic, that's bad. That's the economy is really struggling. So we're four dollars and fifty. So we'll come back to that statistic. I think you know may- maybe every week give people a sense of where it is, and then that gives them. Some context of you know where we are with regard to these inflationary pressures. So something, that is, something interesting with
3: it. copper. <laughs> uh, just re- something interesting with copper. There was a strike at a Chilean uh, uh, mine, so I think that's put some temporary upward pressure on on copper prices. So we have this daily uh, industrial uh, metals price index. So I was looking through to see what's driving this big increase. It's up twenty percent this year. And it's copper, it's oil, it's lumber, nothing really surprising, but a lot of these are experiencing some sort of uh, supply constraint. So I think that's a huge issue that is likely going to plague commodity markets through the rest of this year.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think copper was, if I go back a few days ago, I think it was like a 4 buck 90 And then I go to your Chilean uh, strike, uh, seems to be coming back down a little mm-hmm. bit. So. Do well. Do you have a statistic you think we should be watching on a regular basis uh, uh, for the listener, Chris or Ryan or Bernard? Any any thoughts there?
2: So I'd say on a weekly basis, uh, UI claims, unemployment insurance claims. Okay, you know, come out every Thursday. I eagerly await Ryan's write-up. So you know, it gives a good sense of what's going on on a higher frequency basis than the monthly employment report. So clearly something you want to watch and you can see the downward trends over the last few couple of weeks.
0: And where are we now with, uh, on UI claims?
2: So this week we're at uh, 444,000. Yep. Right. And plus. what would
0: be, what would be typical? What would be, a, you know, we're back to normal.
3: Well, pre-pandemic, we're at 215,000.
0: 215.
3: That was with pretty tight labor market. That was, yeah, right. that, that might've been below average. So 250, Isn't, I guess. Yeah. 250 or 300 would be, you know, a typical, things would be bad, better.
0: Yeah, that closer back to normal. Okay, let's yeah. watch that one on a regular basis. Uh, uh Ryan, uh do you have one we should be watching?
3: So I'll give you two since you usually don't like
2: okay.
3: yes. <laughs> you don't like mine. Give some <laughs> options. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I agree what you said last week and I think I I would pay very close attention to the 10-year treasury yield. I mean, I've been a little I like surprised. I I've, I've been a little surprised that it hasn't moved much higher since you got all these inflation concerns, but the ten-year actually, I think it's down recently. So, I was curious what what what's what's pushing it lower. The data, the economic data, has come in you know weaker than the consensus ex- has expected. So there's a city economic surprise index, and it kind of closely tracks changes in the ten-year treasury yield. So
0: we're at one point, I think today six five, mm-hmm. uh, and the bottom was last August, and we hit. I think almost 50 basis points, 0.5. So we're up 110 basis points, or 1.1 percentage points. So uh, if it, so, uh, if it starts rising, you would. What's your interpretation of that? That, that the economy is normalizing, that we're getting back mm-hmm. to something more typical. And in the yeah, long yeah, run, yeah. what should, what should the ten-year treasury yield be? I know this may be a matter of some oh,
3: debate. Oh, wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to go down this road. <laughs> oh, we really? Uh, don't. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean. I think rates will rise and there's not necessarily a level that you know is really going to start to hamper the housing market for the next you know six to 12 months it's the pace of the increase in the 10-year treasury yield because before when we had this big run-up earlier earlier this year i mean the fed was we know rates should be rising but the bond market was going too quickly and they kind of like job job them down but the other stat which i'm watching because we have all this excess savings we're trying to time when we're going to get this big Release of pent up demand for consumer services. The number of people going through TSA checkpoints.
0: Yeah. Well,
3: 1.7 million yesterday.
0: 1.7 million. And in, in, uh, in 2019, about the same time of year, it was? 3 million, give or take. Okay. So we're still a million, million and a half below every uh, per day below where we should be. But If you look well, at the at trend,
3: typical. if you squint, you're starting to see,
0: you know, it's improving. Yeah. But I that may take some time to get back. We, the economy you might deem it to be back to normal before that gets back to pre-pandemic, right? Because there's going to be a lot of domestic tourism, but I suspect global travel will be impaired for a while and business travel for quite yeah. some
3: time. We, right? we read about all these anecdotes of uh, and you can see it in the in the CPI data, you know, lodging away from home prices are rising. Rental car prices prices are rising very quickly. So I'm, I'm using this kind of gauge when people are going to release their demand for like, consumer services like vacations and things like that.
0: Yeah, got it. Okay, so uh, we're gonna watch uh, copper prices, we're gonna watch uh, UI claims, we're gonna watch the 10-year treasury yield and we're gonna watch TSA. Uh, a number of people go through TSA checkpoints uh, every, every month and see what they're telling us. Okay, all right, um, good. Uh, oh, Bernard, uh, I, I failed to ask you, did, was there any statistic that you think we should be following on a regular basis?
1: So on the topic of inflation I usually I usually like to look at um at what they call sticky price components of uh of CPI so the the Atlanta flood um disaggregates the consumer price index into flexible prices and sticky prices and sticky prices are essentially you know com- they're prices that form the you know the basket of goods and services that um don't, you know these are prices that don't change Frequently, So if if price setters, you know, can only change these prices like for shelter, education and, and um, health care only, you know, at, at very infrequent intervals, they're going to have a lot of, you know, they're going to have inflation expectations in mind. So um, and this, you know, these sticky prices are a good indicator of where inflation will be going, you know, 12 to 12 to 24 months uh, down the road. So that, right. that, that, that uh, you know, so, so that's where I, you know, the, in the CPI, not all, not all of its components are as forward-looking as others. Um, and and this, these ones tend to be quite forward-looking just because there's a lot of inf- inflation expectations Got embedded it. in them.
0: Got it. Is that the, you said the Atlanta Fed? You said these, because yes, there's the a Atlanta number of them. Yeah. You, your favorite is the Atlanta Fed. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. So we'll be watching that mm-hmm. as well. Good. Um, so, uh, Bernard, before we kind of dive into the big topic, which is fiscal policy and a lot to talk about there, uh, anything else uh, you want to tell the audience about yourself? I mean, you speak 10 languages. You're, you're uh squash prodigy. You, I know you moved to Boston. That's why there's no Internet connectivity <laughs> there. Uh, you know, uh, anything else we should, Oh, the other thing you're, you're married to a, for, uh, a former colleague of ours too, right? That's an important. Yes.
1: Thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. How's she yes, doing? And, uh, she, she's she's doing well. She just finished, uh, she just finished law, her first year of law school. Um, and then just finished a grueling week of, uh, this right on competition to get into law review. So she finally has, you know, a few weeks of, uh, of break before she goes back into the internship and, you know, She's a force.
0: um, She's a real force. I mean, she was.
1: Yeah, she did a lot of um, an interesting fact is uh, during the vice presidential debates, both both of our you know, both of our uh, white papers that we did got cited by Kamala Harris. So she did a, a couple years ago, she did a trade war paper with you and Jesse Rogers which yeah. was cited. Um, and then, you know, really? obviously, our, our paper on, uh, you know, on, on the candidate proposals was also cited. So.
0: Yeah. That was pretty something president Biden and, and vice president Harris used our, cited us pretty regularly, didn't they? The movies. Yeah. 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 Wall you, street economists. Saying? Oh yeah. The, no, 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 no. It was, it right. said uh, uh, Moody's the wall street firm, you know, didn't they say that yeah. They said wall street economy? No, I think it's exactly said wall
1: street. firm. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So in not, not just once or twice, but like a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty amazing. You obviously liked our study, uh, in, in the, mm-hmm. in the work. Yeah. Which is good. Uh, okay. So let's uh, turn to fiscal policy. So the American rescue plan, that's the $1.9 trillion package of support COVID support that was passed back. It feels like ages ago, but now it's only a couple of mm-hmm. months ago in March. That uh, a lot of that money's already gotten out. Is that right, Bernard? Uh, the, the,
2: the exactly.
1: Of sort of- it's uh, most of that has, especially in this, the form of stimulus checks. Uh, you know, I'd say the vast majority of the stimulus checks have already gone out right now, and also the UI benefits. That's starting to diminish, and it's going to diminish over time, especially as more states begin to and you know to opt out of the federal UI pandemic programs. Uh, and then even the White House, under pressure, is going to start to institute across all states work search requirements. So all of this, you know, these two sources uh, of you know income, government income support are going to diminish over time. Where you're actually going to see some impulse, you know, some some fiscal impulse is going to come from state and local government uh, funding. So after a long, you know, after a long period of dormancy, we're starting to see in the daily, you know, in the daily Treasury statement that. Um, Congress is starting or that uh, the Treasury is starting, to, uh, is starting to issue a lot of the coronavirus relief funds to state and local governments. And obviously, these are just disbursements. This doesn't really affect the economy right now because it's, it, it takes time for that to get spent. But at least that money is going out the door. It's, in, you know, it's going into the pockets of state and local governments. And our assumption is that you know, over, you know, over the next uh, three to four years, it's going to be gradually spent out. And it's just going to be a steady dose of fiscal support, um, especially by by state and local governments. Um, and uh, also, hey, Ron, yeah. hey, yeah.
0: hey, Bernard, this is a conversation, not a lecture. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> we we talk here on in- Inside Economics. We <laughs> probe and we, you know, we try to yeah. digest it. I mean, you know, we got So you got to break it up. You got to let us get in, you know, into the conversation. <laughs> a bit. Yeah.
3: So. Yeah. Maria's so, rubbing off on him.
0: Is what's going on?
3: <laughs> the the lawyers speak. Is the off Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Maria is his wife, by the way.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine their dinners? What, like one talks for a half hour, then the other one talks for a half hour. <laughs> and then the next one talks for a half hour. It, like, yeah. It's, like in my household, I don't speak at all. I say nothing. Well, we know
3: Bernard's not going to win any argument ever. <laughs> no. Maria. I
0: said he's a force. He's a force. Well, yeah. Uh, Chris, in your household... Yeah. I can't imagine you do the talking. Chris. Saying, uh, I, I used I to. Is no, that right?
2: <laughs> I yeah. used to, Dominique, but now my son, four years old, you know. Oh, but, yeah, he's, yeah. he's the uh, commander in chief.
0: Hey, by the way, are you teaching him Italian?
2: Yeah, for, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, you are. Okay, very for good. Sure.
0: Yeah, that's a smart thing to do. Yeah.
2: You know, keep diversify. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, Bernard, back to you. Uh, so uh, the PPP money, that's the small business uh, program. That's gone, right? That's pretty much.
1: Out it's there. yeah. There's there's only about, you know, according, according to the reports I'm seeing, there's only about a you know eight eight billion left, and these are loans specifically for underserved communities. So, um, mm-hmm. and these are be, you know be, these are being managed by what they call community financial institutions, which you know tend to serve minorities, women, and just other disadvantaged. Communities. Hey, did you
0: know I'm the lead director of the largest CDF or pretty close to the largest CDFI in the country? Did you know that? Yeah. No, investment. I didn't. I didn't yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very happy about that. It's very helpful to the mm-hmm. communities. Uh, so the so okay. So the stimulus checks are out. Uh, the PPP money is gone. Uh, the U I is you know starting to wind down, and it'll be mm-hmm. completely gone by September. Uh, there's rental assistance, and I think a lot of that is already out there. Uh, you know, it's finding its way to renters. Uh, The airlines have gotten their assistance, right? That was part of the package. Yeah, yep. Uh, So the the the, the only I guess there's two things left that is yet to get out there in the economy. One of which you mentioned was the big things, I should say. One is the state and local government aid, and that's a lot, Mm -hmm. right? That's 350 billion, I believe. Okay.
1: Yeah, and then you have another 170 for uh, for education. So it's going to public K through 12 higher ed. Yeah. And, that and that's going to f- be spent over an even longer period of time, all the way through, to, you know, 2027.
0: Okay. And then uh, there's a child tax credit you mentioned as well, because that was exactly. also got, yeah. So that's, that's a, some more funds that are co- going to be distributed, but the, it feels like the correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like the, the largest uh, benefit to the economy, the the real boost to the economy from the ARP has happened it, you know it's, it's in the economy it's happened over the last couple
1: of months is that right would you exactly yeah it, it's, it's it's really the stimulus checks and the ui benefits um and yeah i mean that's really yeah that that really wasn't the rest of it is very other is very slow moving it takes it'll take a lot of time to to really you know to, to really help the economy but it's it's going to come in a lot of small waves it's not going to be all at once like the stimulus checks
0: Right, So we're, the economy is getting this uh, real fiscal boost in this current quarter, Q2, get mm-hmm. something of a boost in Q3, and then it starts to fade pretty fast, right? I mean, in terms of the boost.
3: Exactly, yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, right. Do you think
3: the timing was a mistake with the, the economic uh, payments? Do you think they should have waited until like now is when they first should have gone out when the economy is reopening, more people are vaccinated? I think we may have gotten a bigger boost to consumption- if it was hitting paychecks now or checking accounts now, that people are going out and doing things more freely, rather than ending up in savings accounts. What do you think? Uh,
1: I, I I don't think the timing. I mean, I think if people who are going to save it or spend it, you know, they're going to save or spend it regardless of the timing. Um, and I think it, you know if they had waited to send them out, it also causes more trouble for i i guess it could yeah it could just be another headache for the irs especially at a time when they're also going to be dealing with child payments and other and other work so i i don't think it really it really
2: uh
1: i don't i don't think timing is the issue because i mean yeah if you're going to be spending it no matter what uh if you're going to save it you're going to save it when you know when it whenever it comes but uh I don't know. It, it could. It might have come to a little bit too soon, but I, I don't think it's really a, a big issue.
0: That big a deal. What,
2: what about the argument yeah. that it's created a disincentive to work? Though? That...
0: The UI. The, the UI. The UI or even yeah. the
2: stimulus check, right? Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so with UI, you know, UI is in a very, uh, you know, I'll I'll give some UI, you know, UI some credit because it's one of the most effective forms of stimulus. You know, we've done some past work on on multipliers. So, you know, one dollar spent on UI will over the next year will generate about one point seven dollars in extra GDP. And it's just, you know, it's an extremely effective form of stimulus. And, you know, you really see how the economy started to uh level off or you know slow down in the second half of last year once a lot of that you those ui enhancements uh uh you know expired that said you know i i i you know i, I don't think the the ui benefits are you know in and of themselves this didn't work i think there's a lot of it, it's not mutually exclusive so you might have a lot of people who are afraid of the virus you, you have a lot of people who have you know child care issues And, um, you know, because of the UI benefits, they're able to, you know, maybe wait a bit longer before they really jump back into the workforce. Um, So it's it's not either or. And then plus, you know, these are, you know, it's temporary. Everyone knows that it's going to, you know, these UI benefits are going to expire after September. So it's not something they can count on forever. So if the right opportunity does come, you know, I, I I think the closer we get to September, it's, it's you know, people aren't going to wait just an extra couple of weeks or an extra month until they start
0: work. I have to say, I you know, I, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, but it, it, I have never received so many emails from mm-hmm. people, you know, business people, generally small business people, uh, but people saying, you don't know what you're talking about, that, you know, I'm mm-hmm. on the ground here and I'm telling you people are not coming to work because they're getting that UI benefit that, you know, gives them a benefit that's higher than their mm-hmm. current salary. So you know, how how would you, if you were getting those emails, uh, how would you respond to them?
1: I, I, I you know, I, I think there's, you know, there's, there's definitely truth to that. And one statistic that I did see that sort of, you know, really caught my eyes, if the New York Fed, they do a survey of uh, consumer expectations. And, you know, one of the things they're looking at is the average, you know, the reservation wage by demographic. And if you look at the reservation wage for so the reservation wage is the minimum wage that, you know, workers would be willing to accept in order to, you know, to jump back into the workforce. And for workers, uh, for adults who are without a college degree, you've seen a sharp increase in their reservation wage during the pandemic which is surprising you know to give, given that this you know there's a lot of slack in the economy if you just look at the labor you know the the unemployment rate and um you know I, I think part of that is really the the UI benefits I, I think UI benefits have you know made workers reassess you know how much they're worth or how much they they should be getting paid um, and it'll be interesting to see how sticky that increase in the reservation wage is. Because at some point, you know, if it's if it sticks, at some point, businesses are going to have to raise their, you know, raise the wages that they're the entry level wages that they're going to be offering. But it it could also be due to. to
0: Bernard, on the reservation wage, could it also be, though, that, you know, people are just nervous about going back and they've got family family responsibilities and therefore it's going to take more money to get me back to work at this point in time?
1: Right. Exactly. And I think people have seen the cost, you know, of, of childcare. they They really also internalized, you know, a greater risk, especially people in the high contact industries. I think they've really reassessed, you know, the risk, the health risks of, you know, being in constant contact with clients, you know, whether it's, you know, the coronavirus or just, you know, the regular influenza or, or whatever. You know, there's just the greater realization of, of some of the risks associated with that, which, you know, could also push up the, the, the reservation
2: wage. Chris, you', were going you to do so yeah so whether it was intentional or not is this a mechanism to get to a 15 dollar minimum wage right effectively the extended UI is equivalent to that fifteen dollar wage right and so that has yeah it, uh, it, it could be yeah, it could the floor of the reservation wage
1: yeah it could be I mean I, I don't know if it's gonna create pockets where or especially in companies when you look at mcdonald's or other you know they're, they're going to have to you know i, I think you're, you're, that's going to put pressure or permanent pressure on on wages at least so you know, over the next year so it, it is I it, it maybe doesn't get up to 15 percent, but it's sorry, 15 uh dollars um but uh it definitely will increase it from you know from where it's been
3: i think supporting chris's argument is that you see a lot of businesses even just around where we are in westchester pennsylvania saying that you know we're offering 15 20 dollars an hour uh, and I was even listening to the radio the other day and there was a, an ad for hiring at Wawa which I have never heard before mm. and you know they're you know they, they're spinning it to uh, make it more attractive for people to work there including a free subway or a Wawa oh, sub oh <laughs> Wawa sub each shift it's worth a lot
0: that's worth a lot
3: Hey, for and a $500
0: know, Wawa. signing bonus. <laughs> yeah. Wawa, you know, for people who don't know is amazing. It is like a convenience store. I guess that's the right word uh, that does knows how to provide what they do conveniently. It's really great. In fact, there's a, have you seen this mayor of Easton, uh, mm-hmm. show and it's set in a uh, Philadelphia town and Wawa is, uh, is a part of the of the of the of the town of the of the culture of the town It's really a very important place so if wawa is doing this then it you know it's got to be happening in lots mm-hmm. of different places hey uh i do want to move on um and uh talk about the future so the president biden mm-hmm. you know america arp is you know uh, in train that passed a couple of months ago and is in train Start, it's going to start winding down here in terms of the support to the economy pretty soon. Uh, the next next thing up, though, is the Build Back Better agenda, which is the American Jobs Plan, which is the Infrastructure Plan and the American Families Plan, which is various social programs and tax credits, uh, health care, education, child care, that kind of thing. In total, $4.5 over 10 years in increased spending and, and tax credits. Uh, and, of course, a ta- uh, tax increases as well, on corporations and very high-income well-to-do households to help uh, pay for that, uh, and it does pay for it on paper, at least over a 15-year period. So there's a lot there, and you did a lot of work on this. Uh, really, when I say a lot of work, I mean a lot of work uh, on this. Uh, you know, down into the bowels of the of the uh, proposal. Uh, I know this may be an unfair question, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, what is your favorite part of all the things that he proposed i mean if you had to pick one thing you say i really like this you know from a mm-hmm. pick your criteria macroeconomic perspective income wealth inequality perspective you know however you want to think about it uh what would that be
1: i would definitely say the child care issue uh, the the child care spending uh, to make it more affordable for for low-income households because, you know, again, I, there's several reasons why labor supply is lacking, but I, I still think that child care is a big issue. If you look at the household survey, the pulse survey that the Census Bureau has been conduct, conducting most weeks since the pandemic, you know, we're looking at, you know, at, you know, at about six six million adults who are not working. Uh, you know, have n- regularly not been working. Over, you know, during the pandemic, because of children who are not in daycare or you know, or in school. So I I, I think that's a you know I, I think that's a big thing to address. And I think that's you know, a lot of people have been saying, oh, the American families uh, portion of the you know the Build Back Better is going to be tougher to to pass. But I think that's one thing that should be a slam dunk, especially if we're so concerned now about supply. Um, And, you know, I I think, you know, looking at how fast rising relative to just all prices of goods and services, it it just I I think it's it's a good thing to do to sort of to, to sort of reverse or at least halt a lot of the you know the the, the prohibitive cost of childcare. So I think I, I think if anything the pandemic has made this you know a, a very salient issue that should be addressed.
0: And, and, and there's a, there a couple of things going on here with regard to childcare. You mentioned the child tax credit, and what, that's part of it. But the other thing you're talking mm-hmm. about is for uh, families that uh, spend more than seven percent, I believe, of their income mm-hmm. on child. Care, they will be able to get this benefit to uh, help uh, pay for child care. That that's what you're talking. Exactly.
1: about. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that, and that that's that's an idea that's been kind of out there for quite some time. Uh, that mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, that uh, we actually did. Sophia Korpechke, one of our other colleagues, and I did a paper when uh, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren. During, the, during her campaign, came out with a very similar kind of plan. So that, that paper is mm-hmm. out that people are interested in, in taking a look. Okay, so that's what you, you like the most. And I, I think that's because you guys aren't expecting any children, are you? Or, no. Oh, uh, no. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, we be the first <laughs> not to know. No, not now. Yeah. Inside economics <laughs> to be the first to know if that ever happens. Yeah. Okay.
1: okay. Yeah, at least not, not now while she's in law school.
0: So. Okay, got it. That, makes
1: sense. Yeah, that yeah. actually
0: makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well, here's, here's a really tough question of all of the things that are proposed in the build back better agenda. What is the thing you like least like that you, if you were king for the day, it probably wouldn't have included in the package. Hmm. Oh, look, he's taking his time. He's taking, Hey, do you (laughs) guys have, do you guys have something in the package you don't like? What can, I'll ask you guys too, after uh, Bernard weighs
1: in, go ahead. I, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say I, I, I like this proposal, but I think it's going to be I think it's going to be tough is the community, free, the free community college, just oh. because you have such a wide range of community college costs across the country. So it can be as high as, you know, eight thousand in, dollars in I think it's Vermont, but then it's it's lower than, you know, two thousand in, dollars in California, just because California really does a good job in subsidizing the cost and it, we still have to see how they structure it but it's it seems like they're, it, the way the 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 Biden uh, uh, campaign or the Biden administration has structured this it, it it's not going to be as favorable for a lot of these high tuition states um and you know they're going to have to bear much more of the cost and it's you, you could end up with just the patchwork of states that you know some some you know participate and many others don't so it ends up being less effective um you know than it otherwise would be but in order to really make it a very effective to get a lot of buy-in from all these states it's going to require a much greater you know cost to the federal government than you know than what is being contemplated right now
0: yeah i got it so you're not against the idea of, of free community college you're just saying implementing that might
2: be pretty difficult given
1: yeah implement yeah implementing will that be difficult it will be difficult also on the tax compliance side so they're they're making the assumption that Putting in some extra 80 billion dollars in, you know, towards IRS, uh, towards the IRS's budget, is going to generate 700 billion dollars in additional revenue from wealthy, high-income uh, earners who, you know, who, who uh, you know, many studies show may not be paying, paying their fair share. That also seems a bit high, and um, given that this is what that is the largest source of revenue that's being complicated contemplated in the American Families Plan, you know, if that comes ends up being less than what they're suggesting, you know, that means more debt, you know, more you know more deficits uh, over the course of the next ten years than you know that would be expected, um, because based on the CBO's research, you know, they they assume that you know probably for every dollar that you spend on, uh, IRS, uh, enforcement, you probably get $3 in additional, uh, in additional revenue. So that suggests, you know, probably closer to, you know, 200 billion to 300 billion would be, um, you know, in, in additional revenue would be generated rather than the 700 billion that the white house is assuming.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: Hey, uh, Chris Ryan, do you guys
0: have any aspect of the build back better agenda you want to call out either something you really like or something you really don't like?
2: In terms of what I really like, I, I actually agree with Bernard. I think the the most attractive piece is the early childhood education mm-hmm. piece, in addition to the child care, I think that's that's the responsibility of government, to my eye, and uh, that's mm-hmm. also sets us up for long term mm-hmm. economic growth, productivity growth that mm-hmm. otherwise would not be met by
3: by the market left to its own devices.
2: Got it. You,
0: Ryan, anything you you
3: want to? I put agree on? with Bernard and Chris. I, I think most economists across the board are gonna yeah. yeah you know pinpoint this as the the key one did you see that the, the the infrastructure part is coming down seems like the White House and the the Republicans are going back and forth it's down to one point seven so
0: uh, and it was it, it was originally two what was it Bernard two, two five, three two three
1: so it was two, it was two it was two point two trillion um but again a lot of that a lot of that part of that two point two trillion included Elder care, so increased Medicare, Medicaid services, as well as made in America investments in uh, these so-called made in America investments in R&D and manufacturing supply change, which I, I don't think is part of the physical infrastructure talk that uh, Republicans and and Democrats are talking about now. So, if you just look at the physical infrastructure spending, so you know roads, bridges, highways, broadband. Um, that's more, you know, that that's closer to about $1.2, tr- uh, $1.3 trillion. Um, so it, it's, it, it seems like they're, they're, they're closer, they're closer yeah. to where, you know, yeah. where Republicans are.
3: Yeah. I hope the broadband investment, uh, the, the broadband investment <laughs> in Boston needs to be a top priority. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You uh, mark that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think it's dead on arrival though, still, right? Because as long as you have taxes in there tax increases.
0: Why? You don't think they can get it through on reconciliation? Oh
2: yeah, sure. That yeah. for sure. Oh, in you terms mean of a, a grand bargain the no. <laughs> no? Yeah, I doubt that. Yeah, you know, even 1. they couldn't 7. even agree
0: on uh, a commission to investigate January 6th. How are they going to agree on anything <clears> on, <throat> on that? So, uh, hey, um, I, I did want to ask one question about the process. I, I, I do want to talk about deficits and debt, and I'm going to get that to that in a second. But before I get to that, uh, can you uh, give us Bernard a sense of how you make the sausage here? Because you know this package comes out. You know, there's mm-hmm. uh, the Biden administration is actually pretty good in providing detail in the fact sheets that they provide, much better than you know other administrations. So we get you know some information, but how do you go from what's uh, provided publicly to saying to Hey, Mark, this is what we need to do to drive our models. So you, can you just give us a sense of that? And by the way, you do this very, very quickly. I mean, it's shockingly quickly. So I'm wondering if you've hired anyone to help you that I don't know about. Uh,
1: <laughs> no. So, um, so in general, when you know, on the spending side, usually they'll say, we'll spend this amount of money. So, you know, there I have the top line cost and when it comes to the, you know, the next, the next big issue is really, you know, how do I allocate, allocate this over, uh, you know, over the next 10 years, and that, you know, I, I use past experience, you know, we'll, you know, for infrastructure spending, we'll use the, you know, we'll use the pattern of outlays uh, during the t- 2009 Recovery Act, so that's, you know, that's been a good, useful, you know, r- rule of thumb. For how you know how I distribute that over ten years, then also you know I always am looking at the Congressional Budget Office. They score a lot of all sorts of legislation, many most of which never see the light of day, you know, on the floor of the you know on the on the floor of Congress. But they also give you know you know a pattern of distribution over you know over a ten-year period. So so that informs how you know you know how you know it informs you know the ebb and flow of a lot of these spending. Uh, policies uh, you know over over a ten year period also you know, um, during the Obama administration with each with each uh, budget proposal, there would also be a series of revenue proposals um, that his treasury department put uh, put forth with a lot of you know tax policies and you know t- tax reforms and and obviously you know a lot of what Biden has been proposing is very similar to what Obama has you know proposed earlier on. So, yeah, I'm able to also leverage that, you know, the, those scores, you know, those, um, you know, those res- revenue estimates uh, when I'm estimating, you know, especially on the tax side, some of these proposals that Biden has, uh, has put forth.
0: Yeah, I, yeah you, you make it sound so simple, but it is really incredible what you do and how well you do it, how accurate you are. Um, because we can't make a mistake or otherwise, uh, you know, uh, we've got a problem pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> people are looking at you yeah. very, very closely. And, yeah. uh, yeah. and, uh, I'm just gonna say, I, I, I thank you for, you know, all the hard work you do here. It's You're welcome. Really, yeah. really, really, very good. Okay. I want to uh, finally turn to, uh, deficits and debt, you know, clearly, uh, we've had a lot of, uh, to the debt load. Um, just to give people context, now I'll give you a little b- bit of history here. I mean, if you go back before the financial crisis, from say World War II to the financial crisis, uh, or soon after World War II, the financial crisis, the uh, nation's publicly traded debt to GDP ratio was no more than forty percent, uh, you know, that, you know g- give or take. You know, it had some cyclical elements to it uh, and varied over the business cycle by about forty percent. It It jumped, it doubled during the financial crisis because just how bad that crisis was and how hard it hit the economy. And of course, there was some fiscal deficit finance, fiscal support then as well. So we went from 40% to 80%. And now, given the pandemic, it's jumped to over 100%. I think last I looked, we're like 103, 104%. And that doesn't yet include all of the deficit spending related to the ARP. So when that kind of all gets into the data, we're probably going to be about 110%, 110%. And uh, the highest it's ever been uh, uh, is 105, 6% immediately after World War II, for obvious reasons. So that's just, that's context. Uh, So given that, you know, people are kind of, you know, I get a lot of emails about the UI program. I also get second most emails about our deficits and debt. Shouldn't we be worried about that? So uh, question to the group, should we be worried about deficits and debt? I mean, you know, there's, I guess some folks that say no, but you know, what do you think? Bernard, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah. So I, when, when you talk to a lot of people about the federal budget, you know, I think people people make the mistake of equating it with a household budget. And they're, the two of them are very different. So, you know, the, the federal government is, you know, it's an infinite lived entity, you know, it, it doesn't have to retire its debt at any point. You know, it can borrow with the expectation that future generations will, you know, will pay it off or service, you know, these obligations. Whereas, you know, when you think of a household, you know, they have to retire their debts at some point. You can't go to a bank, ask for a loan, and at, you know, say, you know, my my grandchildren are going to pay it off, you know, all these decades later. So, you know, that's one point, you know, which makes me think, you know, it's it's not it's not as pressing a concern also you know we're the standard measure of you know the debt burden is obviously debt to gdp ratio and i think that this can also overstate you know the the burden of de- uh, of debt because you're comparing a stock to a flow so, the numerator is you know the stock of old debt that we 've accumulated thus far, whereas GDP is really just the income that the economy is producing in a given year, so you know the economy is going to continue to produce you know GDP income you know you know year and year going forward um, so if you compare the debt to you know the amount of GDP and income that's going to be created over a long longer term horizon, you know it doesn't you know the ratio doesn 't look as scary. Um, you know, uh, you know, as it would if you're just you know doing the standard measure of debt to you know to current year GDP. Um, but I, I do think you know at the, at some point debt and deficits you know have to matter you know will, will matter. Um, but I, I would say it's more the momentum in the debt that matters, not so much the level. So if we were to somehow hit 200% debt to GDP ratio, uh, but as long as that stays, that ratio sort of stays stable. Um, I don't think investors are going to worry so much because it, it, it'll show, you know, the stability in that ratio will just show that the government is doing something, whether it's immigration reform, entitlement reform or or tax reform to keep that, uh, you know, that ratios uh, stable. Whereas if, you know, if you see the debt to GDP ratio rising by a few percentage points each year, you know, year after year and it, without any signs of uh, of uh, stopping or slowing then that's when you – I think we you, you really get to sort of a breaking point where you could get sort of a crisis of confidence um, and investors start to ask for you know, higher interest to compensate for the risk of not getting paid back. And then you really – you know interest payments spiral out of control and so you're uh, saying something that, unprecedented – yeah.
0: You're saying it's high, but as long as it's high and stable, we can navigate through no big deal. But if it continues to move higher, at some point mm-hmm. investors are going to say, oh, I, I can – draw a line based on these data points and the line is taking me to a place where I really don't want to go. And exactly. Yeah. Okay. Got it. What do you guys think? Uh, what is your view? Are you as sanguine as uh, Mr. Yaros uh, is here on uh, deficits and debt?
3: Yeah. I'm not worried about the deficit in the near term. Uh, I mean, I think we've discussed like the, the interest payment as a share of GDP is still yeah. really, really low. So even in a rising interest rate environment, as long as rates don't, you know, Spike, you know, we're going to be fine. Uh, you know, but as every Fed chair would say, you know, we're on an unsustainable path, and we got to address this at some point. But we're more like Japan when it comes to deficits and debt than we are with uh, than we are like Greece. So you know, we're not going to have you know a sovereign debt crisis in the U.S. anytime soon.
0: Oh, that's interesting to think about it, Chris. You take a different position on this.
3: No, too bad we don't you. have our
0: colleague Dan White here. I think he might take a different position. What do you think, Bernard? Would Dan be, you know, too bad he had to take the day off
2: or something? Uh,
1: yeah, he
2: would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, it, because, you know, in our in our baseline forecast, for example, we you know, we're assuming that sometime in 20 in, in the 2030s, legislators are going to have a wake up call and they're going to do. You know, a mix of all types of reform, you know, immigration tax and entitlement and really the bang for the buck when it comes to, you know, keeping the debt under control is entitlement reform. But obviously that's politically, you know, treacherous territory. But I think a potential a potential wake up call will be when when, uh, you know, the insolvency facing Social Security really becomes uh, very close. And that's supposed to be, you know, in early 2030s. So, you know, given how salient, you know, social security is for, you know, for the general public, you know, I think that will be, you know, that that will be a call to action for, you know, for Congress to do something. And I think, you know, despite how partisan we have been, you know, how partisan, you know, Congress has become, you know, still, if you look back at last year, Congress rose to the occasion. We did a tremendous amount of stimulus when it when push came to shove. We still, you know, the Congress delivered and I think the same can be assumed, uh, you know, going forward when it comes to, you know, the, like that, the debt. I like stuff, that so, optimism.
0: Yeah. That's 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 a. Hey, Chris, do you have a? I, I cut uh, you off. Though.
2: Yeah, I'm not nearly as
3: optimistic, unfortunately.
0: Okay, <laughs> you it. So.
2: Yeah. Well, he's
3: Italian, yeah, I, so I mean, he's being biased by his experience in Italy. <laughs> that's a good. Yeah, player. I
2: think I think the problem is, yeah, sure, debt is not a problem today. Deficits are not a problem today, but. When they become a problem when suddenly it is an issue then you have no room to maneuver right so the time to act the time to think about it is now when things are relatively stable but like climate change right at some point things can uh, get away from you and at that point you have no more uh, you know have no more a- options right you have to en- enact austerity or take very aggressive actions that would be very punishing very damaging so i uh, I think we need to put the focus back on debt and deficits at this point. And uh, yeah, and I, I would also put everything on the table. No, right? There's no sacred cows here. Uh, the defense budget, everything uh, uh, should be fair game in terms of trying to get back to a more balanced situation.
3: Way to end the podcast. It's really going to be yeah. on an encouraging note.
0: <laughs> well, we're not yeah. done yet. I got I got my three oh, seconds. He's
3: got his two minutes.
0: I'm going to lecture. Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. But, and we are getting late, and uh, this is turning out to be a pretty long podcast. So, uh, Bernard, I know you got more to say, but I'm going to cut you off. Sorry. And we are going to uh, wind it down here. I, I, I want to say a, a, a few things. Uh, uh, first, I agree uh, with Bernard that uh, – lawmakers, the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, and the two Congresses have done a very good job responding to the pandemic, that they provided a a substantial amount of support, by my calculation, about $5 trillion worth of uh, deficit finance support, about 25% of GDP, and that saved the day. Uh, and, And I think that if they had not done that, the economy would have been Substantially weaker, and our fiscal problems substantially worse because of the tougher economy. Unemployment would be higher, uh, and thus government spending higher because of uh, the automatic stabilizers in the budget. Revenues would be a lot lower. Of course, the stock market would be a lot. You know, everything would have caused our fiscal situation to be a lot better. So I think we really didn't have a choice, and at least not a, a good economic choice. And fortunately. Uh, policymakers, lawmakers uh, did the right thing. I will say, though, it took a little bit of pressure for that to happen. Uh, here, I'm going to say something that may be a little controversial. I'm not so sure we would have gotten all of the support if not for the Georgia Senate races, right? Because it, you remember the Georgia Senate races, uh, they, uh Georgia, they were under Republican control, we had the November election, uh, the margin of victory for the Republic uh, 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 wasn't wide enough, so there had to be a runoff. And as soon as it became clear that those races were competitive, uh, that's when Congress and the Trump administration came together at the end of December and passed a piece of legislation to support the economy. And by the way, if they hadn't done that, I think there's a pretty good chance that the economy would have gone back into recession. You remember back in December, we lost jobs and the the pandemic was raging. It wasn't clear when we are going to get vaccines. It was a pretty dark time. And uh, because of that uh, COVID package, that $900 billion package, it turns things around. And then, of course, the Georgia Senate, uh, uh, Senate seats flipped to the Democrats and you got the American Rescue Plan and now we're off and running. So, you know, the history of all this may have ended up being very different in our assessment of what lawmakers uh, had did may not be as glowing if, in fact, you know, that might have been a different turn of events. Second thing I say is I agree with Chris. It's now time to really start thinking about uh, our deficits and debt. That does not mean that we can't have a, a aggressive build back better agenda. You know, we need infrastructure spending. We need uh, to uh, provide for childcare and healthcare and education. These are things that are investments in the economy's ability to grow. Uh, in terms of infrastructure, it's about productivity, mostly about productivity growth. In terms of uh, the social programs, that's as we talked about, mostly about labor force participation, getting people back in. If we want a stronger long-term mm-hmm. economy, we need to do those things, but we need to pay for them. And that means we, you know, in the, in, if we're gonna do this, we do need to raise taxes and it makes sense to raise taxes on uh, uh, large corporations and on the well-to-do and high-income households because they're the ones that got the big tax cuts back a couple of years ago, and their effective tax rates are about as low as they've ever been historically. So make, make, normalizing them to me may, makes a lot of sense. But I don't think we should pass uh, uh, legislation that now doesn't pay for itself. By the way, that that's both in a long-term sense, because I do think we need to be worried about our debt load and what that means for future interest rates, but also in a near-term sense, because with the American Rescue Plan and all the other things going on in the economy, we are going to get back to full employment. So if you have deficit-financed fiscal support with an economy at full employment, becomes very counterproductive very quickly. You have inflation, higher interest rates, you overheat and you can go back in recession, which nobody wants. So, I mean, even if you you don't even, you're not buying into the need for you know fiscal restraint long run in the near term, I think there's a, a logical argument to be made. Uh, so um, I do think the Build Back Better agenda that the president has proposed is a good one, but in significant part because uh, it's paid for. But You know, uh, there's a lot of ground to be covered here, a lot of script to be written. Bernard, we're going to have you back uh, and help us uh, digest all of it. And the next time we're going to get Mr. White uh, in on this conversation, Uh, you know, I think he would uh, spice things up a little bit, uh, more than a little bit, I think. Uh, He's got a different perspective on things. So with that, we're going to call this a podcast. Uh, Everyone, thank you for, uh, for attending, and we'll talk to you next week.